start with the word of prayer, and Jason will lead us in the prayer. Let's pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, we are so grateful, Father, that we have such a privilege to serve you. We're so thankful, Father, that you are always there for us. You're always there to help us to grow closer to you and to be more like your son. We're thankful, Father, for your word, for you have not left us in the dark on what we need to do to be right with you and to have fellowship with you. We praise you, Father, for the privilege of your word. Thank you for this time that we're going to have this weekend to study the book of Revelation. We pray your blessing upon the study, Father, and we pray our hearts will be open to listen to the things that are taught to us that we may bring glory to you in our lives more tomorrow than we did today. We pray that you be with Gary through the study. We pray that you bless him and his efforts in in the gospel. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at the book of Revelation, and as we do that, uh, you're welcome to offer your uh, comments, questions. Uh, sometimes I'll ask. I won't always ask. You can just tell. Um, uh, because I'm going to try to uh, cover this relatively efficiently, uh, so I'm not just going to bog us down asking at every moment if you have something to say, but when you do, say it. I want to make two observations before I start about the limiting factors in our understanding the book of Revelation. You know, most people would look at this book and say, you know, this is really hard, we really have a hard time with this, we don't really know what it means, you know, things like that. And I think there are two reasons for that, primarily. There are some other things, and we'll get into them. But first of all, we don't know the book. You know, it's kind of like you know, we feel pretty comfortable, say, in the book of Acts. And if I mention, um, you know, it was that guy riding in the chariot. You all are thinking about who he was, where he was from, where he'd been, what he was doing, where he was reading from, who came and talked to him, what he did with him. You may even remember the chapter it was in, etc. I might just talk, saying, there's a guy riding in the chariot in the book of Acts. Now, no wonder we have an idea of what it means. We've studied it, thought about it, meditated on it, and we know even the details of the story. I bet somebody in here even can tell me where the road went to that he was on. His road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And, uh, you know, we know the details of stories like that. But if I say, uh, you remember that, uh, you know, that, that fifth bowl of wrath, you know... You, you remember what the, the guy on that black horse was doing? Or something like that. I bet for most of us it's like, uh, yeah, whatever. Well, we're not going to know a book. We're not going to understand a book if we don't know it. If we have never studied it. And if we haven't studied it enough that the details are things we remember and we relate to. I think the first thing we have to do if we're going to understand the book of Revelation, let's learn it. Let's really know it. You know, let's really get it to where we know those details, we can see the pictures, because we've been through the details, and we've seen those pictures. And we understand the sequence of events, and things like that. 
Once we start doing that, it's amazing how much we'll see and how much insight we'll have just because we know the text. The second thing I would say that's a limiting factor for us is our knowledge of the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament prophets. Because Revelation draws from sort of a stock of figures and images that are used especially in books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah. And those are probably books for many Christians that we don't know much better than we know the book of Revelation. Well, so we're kind of, if we're kind of ignorant of some of those background materials, and then we've never read or studied the book of Revelation much, that's going to seem like a big mystery. We can start reading and it's like, what is that all about? Uh, so that's my appeal to begin with, is we'll understand this book without a whole lot of problem if we really get to know it, and if we know the background material. I hope by the time we're done this weekend, and I realize we'll probably not finish the book, I'd love to, but I doubt that we will, but I think by the time we're done this weekend, you will say, at least the parts we've covered aren't that hard. I I don't think you'll find them that difficult. There will be a few details, a few things, that we may say, ah, that was a little harder, I didn't, that was harder for me to get you know, my mind around or whatever. But in general, I think we'll find it fairly straightforward. We'll do with this a lot of what we do with any book in the Bible. We read it and try to understand it in its context. So that's uh, what I wanted to say to start with. And uh, the introduction to the book is really given in the introduction to the book. So we're going to introduce the book by looking at these first 11 verses that really set the stage. I do think... For our study, these first 11 verses are the most critical verses. They usually are. A book usually starts by telling you what it's all about. And uh, Revelation really does. You get these first 11 verses down well. You understand some of the parameters that these verses are setting up. It'll help a lot. So, would somebody read the first 11 verses of Revelation 1? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion, in the tribulation and kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, 
to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. All right, very good. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's it's an unveiling that comes from Jesus. And uh, if we look at the first verse carefully, we can sort of see the chain of transmission. Who really originated this revelation? God. God. He passed it through whom? Jesus. Then he passed it through whom? John. In between Jesus and John. This angel. Then to John. And then from this whole introduction, John passed it to who? Yeah, these seven churches that were in Asia. So you've got this sort of chain of transmission. It's unusual uh, degree of emphasis on the authority uh, behind this book. This comes from God, through Jesus, through the angel, through John, to us. And uh, it's to show uh, his bondservants some things. The, the verb show helps you to see the idea this is uh, in visual form. We'll see that even more as we go through this. Um, and it's about things that were going to happen when? Yeah, it's about things that were going to happen soon. And in verse 3, what does he say about the time frame? Yeah, the time is near. So he emphasizes that the things he was writing about were going to happen soon, that the time was near. You might just take a glance at the very last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 6. You look at 22, 6. When were the things going to take place, uh, did they say? Shortly. Yeah, shortly or soon. And verse 10 of chapter 22, the time was what? And therefore, in verse 10, he says, don't seal, up, don't seal up these words. They're going to happen soon. Now, that contrast, I'll just mention, I'm not going to look at for now. In Daniel 8, there was a prophecy that was supposed to be sealed up, for it applied many days in the future. It was talking about something about 400 years later. So he said, seal that one up. Don't seal this one up, the time's near. Jesus is telling these seven churches that what he's writing about are things that are going to take place uh, shortly. So that's that's what he says about what he's writing about. He testifies in verse 2 to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. We'll keep saying this. This is a visual book. This book is John telling what he saw. And uh, I'll save my uh, emphasis on that uh, till a little later, but remember that, and we'll talk about that again in a minute. He pronounces a blessing on the one who does what? Reads, hears, and keeps, or heeds. Now that's interesting. It's the uh, only book in the Bible with a special blessing pronounced on the reading of it. That's interesting. But it's interesting to me that you also are supposed to keep these things or heed these things. This is not a book just to be read and intellectually grasped. It's a book to be obeyed. Revelation is an exhortation. Revelation tells us not just what to think, it tells us what to do. And I think that's a very important lesson for us in this. This is not going to be primarily something where we're going to end up thinking, All my intellectual curiosity has been 
resolved or stimulated by this. It's much more going to be a practical book that really needs to be kept. There are lessons in this that we need to heed. And and so that, that puts this into more of an exhortation as opposed to a speculation kind of a context. All right, anything you want to say about those first three verses? When you start in verse 4, what does this sound like? Yeah, it sounds like, you know, uh, one of Paul's letters, maybe. You know, you can imagine Paul saying, Paul, to the church in such and such a place, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or something like that. Now, we had a little preface, those first three verses. You know, that's a little different to have a sort of a preface. But starting in verse 4, this is an epistle. And that's what it is. The book of Revelation is a letter. Now, you know, many of the letters were written to one church, although there were some that Paul, for example, would include in the introduction, other churches. There were some that were written to groups like the Christians of the Dispersion or whatever. Think about James or First Peter or whatever. This is just a, a, a letter written to seven churches. Now, I'm going to have to belabor something that normally we don't have to. Because Revelation seems so different to us, and because we've not studied it before, there's, there's a fundamental point that we need to make. When you read an epistle, you are reading somebody else's mail. You're reading a letter written to somebody. For example, you read 1 Corinthians, and it says, Each of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Do we say, ah, which, which, which person is saying I'm of Apollos? You know, which, which is the guy that's saying I'm of Paul? Do you look around and think that? When you read that? Well, no, you don't think that. What do you think about that? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Who was saying those things? The Corinthians. The Corinthians. So do you say, well, that was the Corinthians, this is now, we don't need that. Is that what you do? What do you learn from that passage in 1 Corinthians? Don't do it. Don't do the same type of thing. We shouldn't be members of some party. We shouldn't follow after men. We shouldn't denominationalize ourselves by some man or something like that. We do that automatically. You know, nobody had to tell us, well now, you know, don't don't expect that somebody today necessarily will be saying I'm of Apollos, but learn the lesson that we shouldn't call ourselves after some man or try to divide up the church into different sects or whatever. You know, we automatically understand that when we read the other epistles. We need to understand that here. What he's going to be writing about are things that relate to these seven churches, but that have application for us as we are in similar circumstances. God doesn't change. Man doesn't change much either. And so what was written to the Corinthians has a lot of application to us. What was written to these seven churches of Asia has a lot of application to us. That's what we're reading. So, it's John to these seven churches. He wishes for them grace and peace. Very uh, much like Paul would have done. Um, and where the, the only difference here is, um, you know, normally, uh, when grace and peace was wished, it was from two sources. God and Jesus. In one book, from one source. In a couple of books, there are no sources mentioned. But here, it's grace and peace from three sources. 
from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spiritual before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. So you've got grace and peace given from three different uh, entities. Now look at them. From him who is and who was and who is to come refers to who? God the Father. And what it's saying about God is that God's eternal. He always is. You know, whether it's in the past, the present, or the future, God is. He is eternal, He's self-existent, He's unchanging. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. wonder what that's talking about. That's the first thing that really gets us in this book, isn't it? That's a good question, because in chapter 3, verse 1, it seems like it's talking about Jesus as the one who has the seven spirits of God. Uh-huh. So I was thinking it could possibly be a reference to Jesus, but part of me is also thinking it could be a reference to the Holy Spirit. Okay. We have, a re- we have grace and peace from the Father, from the seven spirits, and from Jesus. Now... You know, you'd have a hard time making those seven spirits something that wasn't essentially of the same weight as the Father and Jesus. Look with me at a passage right quick. Look at Isaiah 11. I think this is a background passage that will help, along with a couple of other pieces of information uh, that we'll mention in a second. In Isaiah 11, you may know this passage. This is a strongly messianic passage where you've got this shoot, this branch that comes from the root of Jesse. And look at verse 2 and count them. This is talking about Jesus now. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. That's one. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There are the sevenfold qualities of the Holy Spirit. You've got a sevenness. Now, the, the, the numbers are symbolic, really, in all the Bible, but especially in Revelation. Seven is God's special number. It's the complete, perfect number. I'll tell you, there's sevens all over the Bible. I've just been doing a lot of work in the early chapters of Genesis. It's incredible. The sevens in that are overwhelming. You don't notice them at first. But there are just some incredible illustrations of the number seven even things that you might not see at first, like in the first part, 1, 1 to 2, 3, God is mentioned 7 times 5 times, 35 times. Then in the next book, from 2, 4 to 4, 26, he's mentioned another 7 times 5, 35 times. And the 70th mention of the Lord is where they began to call on the name of the Lord. There's a ton of stuff like that. So seven's always a symbolic number in the Bible, and, and certainly is here. So the seven spirits would be like God's spirit, like the fullness of the spirit, the spirit in all of his qualities. And so I think this is just a reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, any, anybody want to say something about that? Yeah. I'd say it's the first indication. Well, you can go to Isaiah and you count seven. I don't think necessarily when you read a seven, that means seven. It means something symbolic, like you say it. And I agree, it's the Holy Spirit. Right. The number seven is associated with God. Exactly. Exactly. Good point. And from Jesus Christ, here's another seven if you count them up. He is um, the faithful witness, 
He's the firstborn of the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He loved us. He released us from our sins by his blood. He made us to be a kingdom and priest to his God. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So there's seven things about Jesus right there, uh, which doesn't surprise us, uh, perhaps. Um, but notice those things. The first three are who he is. He is the faithful witness. Um, you know, a witness testifies. Jesus is an honest, faithful uh, testifier. What he reports is true. He's the firstborn of the dead. That's kind of a paradox, isn't it? The firstborn of the dead. Uh, but the idea is Jesus conquered death. He's the one who gained the victory over death. He's the one who has the rule over death. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, if you look at it, this is almost like the life, the resurrection, and the exaltation. He was a faithful witness. He conquered death. And now he's ruling over the kings of the earth. Um, and amazingly, when you look at what he does, the next three things, what does the ruler of the kings of the earth do, according to verse 5? He loves us. Loves us. That is remarkable. He is the one that's in charge of Obama. And, I don't know, whoever other rulers are. Not very good with all that stuff. <laughs> Ahmadinejad and all that kind of stuff. You know, he's the one He's the one over them. And when he decides, he will bring some down. He'll replace them with others. He's, he's the one who, he rules over them. You know, they may not know it, but they got a boss. Now, you know, even the earthly rulers he rules over. Any of you know Obama personally? What do you think would happen if uh, tomorrow morning I kind of got a hankering to talk to him? I called, you know, up the White House phone and said, could I, could I talk with Barack? You know, you think I'd get through? You think they'd let me talk? You know, I mean, obviously he's too important and got too many important things to think about to talk to me. I expect he'd like to have my vote, but other than that, he really didn't care about me. And he wouldn't know who I was. We wouldn't expect that he would. You know? But we can talk any moment we want to, day or night, with the one who rules over it, Obama. And he actually loves us. He knows us personally, and he cares about us. That's an amazing thing. That the Jesus who rules over the kings loves us, not only loves us, but look what he did for us. He released us from our sins by his blood. That's amazing. He sacrificed himself so that he could free us from our sins. And not only that, he made something out of us. He's made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. No wonder, he says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That, that, wow. This is, this, these are good verses. You know, 4, 5, and 6, the grace and peace coming from those three sources and the descriptions of them make you really honor the Lord more and be more impressed by what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done. Comments and questions?
Well, in verse 7, we learn that uh, he's coming again, and uh, every eye will see him, even those who might not want to. Those who pierced him, it's interesting, he talks about piercing him, it's even more graphic than crucifying him, maybe. You know, those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. We haven't seen the, seen the end of Jesus. Now, I think in the context of the book of Revelation, probably he's thinking about his coming to punish the enemies of the first century Christians. But the fact is, Jesus is a Jesus that we still have to deal with. You know, we can do whatever we want to to him, but he's always coming. He's always bringing judgments and punishments upon men and nations, and he will come again ultimately, and bring all of us to account. So, you know, uh, you can't get by with ignoring the Lord. And then he says in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega aren't words we use every day of the week. What did those mean? Those words mean in, to them? Why did they mean beginning of the end? Yeah, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. This work, book was written in Greek. So it's like saying, I'm the A and the Z. You know, I, he's the one who encompasses everything uh, within him. And uh, the says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God is so much greater than all the things here that distract we get so wrapped up and worried about and interested in and obsessed with a bunch of trivia when it's all said and done. If you think about how great God is, it really puts everything else uh, in perspective. And then in verse 9, I, John, and, and now he kind of has a personal introduction, he describes himself. And he has a strong bond with these people he's writing to. He's a fellow partaker himself in the tribulation, so he's gone through a lot, and kingdom, and perseverance. You know, he's, he's stuck it out, which are in Jesus. And he was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was a 10-mile by 6-mile rocky island about 35 miles off the coast of Miletus near Ephesus. Probably was an island prison, kind of like Alcatraz. And, and when it says that he was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, it probably means he was being punished for preaching. So he's been banished to this island for his faith, He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. There's a debate about this. But from the second half of the second century on, that phrase, the Lord's Day, was used very commonly to refer to Sunday. We do not have an example contemporaneous with John using that term that way. We don't have a whole lot of writings from the second half of the first century, other than the Bible. But my guess is, the fact that within less, well, under a hundred years after John wrote, we see that term used regularly for Sunday, that's probably what it meant in John's time as well. And probably, he's not able to worship with other people uh, on the Lord's Day, he's been banished to this island, but he's in the spirit, sort of in a trance, in a visionary state, and he hears this loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet saying, and look at verse 11. I will emphasize this. What does the voice tell him to do? 
Write what? Write what you see. Now, we've had it already in verse 2. He testified to what he saw. And even from verse 1, that he showed it to him. We'll have it again in verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, you are seeing, you will see. But the whole idea of the book of Revelation is John writes what he sees. Now, why would somebody write what they saw? They were told to. They were told to. To remember, what would they write to somebody what they saw? Yeah. What do they want us to do with that when they write what they see? There's some information going to see. Not just information. If you write what you see to somebody, what are you wanting them to do? See it too. He writes what he sees so that we can mentally recreate this and so we can see it. Revelation is an extremely visual book. I will emphasize a lot the need to see this. When he writes these things, see them. Visualize them. 20 years ago, I taught Revelation uh, in, a, in a, like a Sunday afternoon class. Just kind of an overview in seven two-hour sessions, I think, on Sunday afternoons. To about 30 Christians. There was one very active, very imaginative 12-year-old in that group. He's the one who got it. He saw it better than anybody else did. He could see it. He imagined it. And he got the point. We will do much better with this book if we will see it. In fact, I want to suggest a couple of things about that. Imagine that John was in a theater and he's seeing a play on the stage. And sit beside him and watch it too. And distinguish between two things. I have occasion by the end of this chapter to say this again and prove it a little in a little different way. But, but we need to engage in two steps when we look at this. The first is to simply say, what did he see? Now when John talks about um, a beast coming out of, up out of the sea, guess what he saw? He saw a beast come up out of the sea. That's what he saw. And he says it has seven heads and ten horns and all that. What wonder what he saw. He saw seven heads and ten horns on that beast that came up out of the sea. First, realize John saw exactly what he's describing. Let's see what he saw. We want to jump to step two before we do step one. Don't do that. See it first. See what he saw. Now the second step, obviously, is what did it mean? And we'll have to ask that question sometimes. And it'll be helpful to us to ask that and to think through that. But that's step two. Jumping to what it means before we see what he saw really is not very productive. We argue about things we we haven't even figured out what he saw yet. So, I'll really push seeing what he saw. Visualize Revelation as we go through. Alright, that's what I have to say about the first 11 verses and about introducing the book. What do you want to say about all that? You you comment about seeing what he saw. I think it's helpful if you think about when you have a dream, you know. You see things that happen in a dream that in the dream make perfect sense to you. And then you wake up and you think, well, how did that happen? You know, in your dream, something suddenly changes to this and then it does this and it all makes sense in the dream. 
And when you wake up, you think, what in the world was going on? And a lot of times you're amused by it, you wonder by it, and sometimes you think, oh, I bet I was thinking about this. I bet this is what yeah. this is related to. And, and you figure it out, you know. But, you, like you said, you have to see it first. And I think it's helpful, you know, if you remember your dreams, uh, when you start having dreams, when you get up in the morning, write down your dream or try to remember it. And, you know, after a while, you kind of get used to it. And you realize you see a lot of things. <laughs> you do. And in your, and they all make sense, you know? <laughs> Very good point. That's exactly right. Yes. Eric. I think it's interesting that, um, because he didn't say write what you think is interesting, write what you think is really cool, he said write what you think. We know that he wrote what he saw, which means he saw, he saw it all, and he wrote it all. Yes, indeed. You might think about, why did God communicate it this way? I mean, why didn't he just, like, sort of tell us what it meant and not bother with all this, you know, vision stuff? What do we say about that? We've got a slogan we always say. Picture's worth a thousand words. This has so much more impact being visual. It's more vivid. It grips you more. You know... It may be frustrating once in a while to people because we're like, man, this is more complicated. No, it's more moving. It's more exciting. You can feel the point, not just intellectually understand the point. Other thoughts and comments, questions? All right. Um, well, we have a chance to practice what we just said. I would like for us to uh, visualize this uh, as we look at... Um, the next section. Let's try to, to envision this. To see it in your mind. Uh, we're going to start in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so John turned to see the voice, and he saw seven lampstands. Talk a little bit more in a minute about what those meant, but that's what he sees, like seven uh, lamps. Uh, and what does he see in the middle of those lamps? It is Jesus. Jesus basically looks like a what? Like a man. 
Jesus in some sort of a bodily human-like form. That's what he sees. And, uh, well, can you see him? You know, did you visualize, I mean, can you kind of imagine, too, what you would have felt if you had seen him? You know, John turns and he sees this. Wow. If you had been with John, and you turned and you saw Jesus like that, I've got a question. What would be the, the thing that would, would stand out the most? What would you have noticed and your attention most been riveted on? The ground. The ground. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but in the figure. His face? Why his face? Yeah, it was so bright. You know, you, I, I suppose you could hardly look straight on. You know, you, you'd have to squint. You know, his face was like, shining like the sun. I mean, and I gather that John was fairly close to him. It must have been blinding. Can you imagine a glow like that? That was really impressive. I don't think that would have been the thing I most noticed. What would you have most noticed? The sword coming out of his mouth. Wow. Tell you what, what that uh, figure says, I will cut you. (laughs) You know, uh, he is the word, and he has penetrating words. So you imagine him with this sharp sword coming out of his mouth. That's impressive, but I don't think that's the first thing, the main thing I would have noticed. What would you have noticed? His eyes, what were they like? Yeah, that's, I think, what I would have seen. Have you ever seen somebody whose eyes are just like, you just can't take your eyes off of them? Every once in a while you see somebody whose eyes are just like, they're captivating. These eyes were like, just flames of fire jutting out. Wow! That would have been amazing. He's got x-ray vision. (laughs) You know, he can see through things. Now there's some other things that would have really impressed me too. What would have impressed you? His voice like what? Anybody heard, anybody been to Niagara Falls? Okay. Not many. And uh, you guys don't live that far either. I'll just go sometime. Uh, There is a waterfall that I have not been to, but I know a lot of people who have, on the Brazil-Argentina-Paraguay border, I think it is. uh, Iguazu Falls. And it makes Niagara look like Niagara. From what I understand, it's like, you never went, did you go? Okay. Okay. Well, I don't know, you... Sometimes one place I didn't go. Uh, you know, it's like five times now. And they say, just it, when you get even miles from there, the sound is just deafening. Apparently, it's just incredible. Can you imagine somebody who's got a voice like that? That must have been just overwhelming. Whoa. <laughs> Had some impact. I, I wonder about the size of this being. What would show you he was really big? Yeah, he was holding seven stars, hello. That's amazing. How could anybody hold seven stars in his right hand? And you may not have thought about this so much, but think about his feet being like burnished bronze after it's been caused to glow in a furnace. Now, I think the idea is this bronze, I don't really know what color bronze gets when it gets really hot. Does it get red? Get red hot bronze, I guess. Can you imagine just just glowing hot bronze? 
That's his feet. What would happen if he stepped on something? Yeah, it would be incinerated. It would just melt under him. There's a number of passages that you might connect with this. I, I might notice one or two with you. Uh, in, in Micah chapter 1, th- this is a cool text if you haven't thought about this. You know, you just, you just impress, you just appreciate the prophets for the, the vision of the greatness of God. You've got God coming down in Micah 1 3. The Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high place of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. I mean, his feet set foot on a mountain and it just runs down like, like wax, like water. It just melts. It just, you know, liquefies right on the spot. That's, that's, that's amazing power. All of this goes together to just stun you. You know, I mean, honestly, what if you could see that with John right now? Can you imagine if, if, if the book of Revelation had stopped right here, and that's all John saw, do you think it might have affected him the next day? The next week? The next year? Wouldn't have it helped so much to put things in perspective? To really see what matters and what doesn't? I mean, we need a much more exalted vision of who Jesus is. In this case, what was John's reaction? Yeah, yeah, he was overwhelmed. I think we would we would have felt the same way. He's strength. He fell flat on, on his face. You know, think about the concept of Jesus that we typically have. If you picture Jesus, that's probably this is probably true for us. It really be true in the world. If you picture Jesus. How do you usually picture Jesus? On the cross. Yes, as kind of a pitiful figure on the cross, or a baby baby in a manger, or maybe, I I picture Jesus, you know, out in a peaceful, tranquil countryside with a few sheep and some little children around him. You know, really kindly, you know, that kind of thing. Now, those pictures, maybe except for the countryside one, are pretty valid pictures. But they're not the way Jesus is now. And the thing that those pictures have in common is, Jesus kind of looks weak in those. I want us to see Jesus like he is right now. We need to be much more awed by Jesus' greatness and magnificence and majesty now. He is amazing. He is awesome. If you could only see Jesus like this, that's the way he is now. You know, he's not on the cross anymore. He's not a baby in the manger anymore. And so I think this could really uh, help us a lot. And I, I, I can only imagine what, what John must have thought. And Jesus just, well, look what he does. You know, here's John, fainted. And what does Jesus do? Yeah, with what? His right, what did he have in that hand just a minute ago? We put that right hand on John and, and, and says, don't be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and I walked out with the keys to death and Hades. John, you write what you see. You write what you did see. You write what you will see. And I'll tell you a couple things that will help you. What do these things mean? Well, what did the seven um, 
Stars mean? The angels of the seven churches. What did the seven lampstands mean? The seven churches. That would make sense, doesn't it? We are called to be the light of the world. We're to be God's light shiner forth. So we're God's lamps. And, uh, you know, everything in the book of Revelation has an angel. I have never, I've still not done this, but one of these days, one of my projects before I, uh, you know, get to be 120 is to go through and just catalog the angels in the book of Revelation. They're all over the place. You can do that in the whole Bible. There's a lot of them there too. Uh, but each, each one of the churches evidently has an angel associated with it. Now, this is a kind of a pattern for us. You know, John, did he see angels in churches? No, he saw stars and lampstands. What did they mean? They meant angels in churches. All right, that was a lot. Comments and thoughts? Anything you want to say here on chapter 1? You mentioned about how we see Christ, and this is John seeing Jesus this way. It's saying John would you know, lay his head on the breast of Jesus at, at dinner, who had seen Jesus on the cross, and now he sees Jesus like this. And, and despite had it, having had such a close relationship with Jesus, such a love, when he sees his glorified form, he is stricken with fear and fall. So he, he has a very real sense of the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. I don't know how quickly he perceived that. Um, certainly he would by the time he says, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. So I don't know that I have the answer to that. When you know it says the seven stars will be seven angels of the seven churches, do you think these are literal angels? I do. Anybody can say anything else they want, but that's what I think. Well, when you say over, I'm not sure about that preposition, but they're angels that correspond to church. You know, in the Bible, we just have not probably, at least I haven't, looked as much at angels as I should. There are, there's a lot of angelic involvement in this world. In Daniel 10, you evidently have some sort of celestial princes that correspond to various nations. In Matthew 18.10, he says that, that each the little ones, they're angels behold the Father who's in heaven. Evidently, there's angels that correspond to individuals. Ephesians 6 suggests we have a warfare, the kind of work, a, cor- a corresponding celestial warfare against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. I think there's a lot more involvement of the spirit world in things that happen here. Hebrews 1.14 says the angels are ministering spirits to help us. So I take it that just as there's angels or princes or something that correspond to nations, just like there are angels that have a, have a relationship with individuals, so the church, each of the churches has an angel. Now, what that angel does for the churches exactly, or how they relate, I don't know that completely. I don't think we have a whole lot of information about exactly how God uses angels. But, but to me, the simplest explanation is the best. He says that we're angels of the churches, we've got angels all over the place in Revelation. So I don't see any reason not to just assume that. Yeah. The problem I have is when you go to chapter 2 and 3, the angels are the ones that are suffering Jezebel, and the angels are the ones who, I guess I would think, it's the Christians in that 
And so I totally agree. We don't understand angels at all. And I don't, you know, fully understand. I know it's a message to the church, and I think that's the important part. But however you want to fit it in, that's fine. I think we all agree on that. Sure. And that's a good point. Uh, he does write to the angel of the churches. If we were going to make a case for it being something other than an angel, that would be a good thing to, a good place to start. My take is that when he writes to the angel, then the message relates to the church that that angel corresponds to. But, and you're welcome on, on any of these points for sure. Somebody wants to present a different view, you're more than welcome to. Yeah. I just love this picture that I get out of this, you know, just this idea of someone that's in charge of these lampstands. You know, if you think in just like a normal picture in this life, someone who, like, at that time would be taking care of the lampstands, they'd put oil in them, they'd trim the wicks, you know, they'd make sure they're working properly. Then you see Jesus among these lampstands, and you're like, wow, who's the keeper of our lampstands? It's just so, such an amazing picture, you know, what, how, you know, Jesus relates to the churches. Good point. Other thoughts? My inclination, since you all are paying good attention, is to just keep teaching. And when you need a break, or when you need to go to the bathroom, or do whatever, you're not going to 